We talk about Palestine Legal all the time on the podcast. Today's guest is Emel Thabata. There is a growing Palestine solidarity movement in the U.S. It's student-led, it's diverse, filtering up from the grassroots, and, and is interconnected with other racial justice struggles. Palestine is being increasingly censored in a way that harkens back to McCarthyism in the 1950s. The Palestine exception to free speech is a sign of erosion of free speech and other constitutional rights. Rather than engage such criticism on its merits, a network of think tanks leverage significant resources and lobbying power, pressure universities, government actors, and other institutions to censor or punish advocacy and support of Palestinian rights. The point of censorship is to have a chilling effect. The huge corporation hopes that you will paralyze in that moment. They know that they can't actually stop the flow of information. They just want to interrupt it. Palestine Legal helps you not feel like you're tackling this beast by yourself. I've gotten in touch with you guys a bunch of times. Thanks for your help already. (laughs) Hello and welcome to episode 88 of the Palestine Pod, the weekly podcast where we break down the latest headlines dealing with Palestine from all over the world and bring you stories, commentary, and interviews with the aim of supporting the Palestinian struggle for decolonization, justice, and equal rights. I'm one of your hosts, Lara E. You might know me from Instagram as at Girl, and I'm joined by my co-host, Mikey B. What's up, y'all? Mikey B on TikTok, Michael Scherzer on Instagram. And you can call me Mikey Intifada if you literally called for the wiping out of a town. Before we get into today's episode, Please like, comment, and subscribe if you hang out with us on YouTube. If you're listening on a podcast app, subscribe and leave a review. As always, you can find our full episodes and sources on palestinepod.com. And if you want to get involved in the conversation, reach out to us at palestinepod at gmail.com and give us a follow on Instagram at the Palestine Pod. Find us also on Patreon, where you get early access to the Palestine Pod episode and additional podcast per week. The Patreon pod, it's a little more laid back. We talk politics, Palestine, pop culture, and get a little more personal. We're also hosting our monthly Zoom happy hours with our Patreon subscribers only. So really exciting stuff. Check us out on patreon.com slash palestinepod. Today's guest is Emel Thabeta. She's the Michael Ratner Justice Fellow at Palestine Legal, where she challenges the censorship, surveillance, and suppression of advocates of Palestinian liberation. She earned her JD from CUNY School of Law, where she was a Sorensen Center for International Peace and Justice Fellow, a Public Interest Merit Scholarship, and she served as a senior staff editor for the CUNY Law Review. Amel, welcome to the Palestine Pod. Thank you so much for having me, Lara and Michael. It's a pleasure to be here. Also, what a resume. (laughs) (laughs) I also read the short version, so I have severely downplayed her accomplishments. It was like accolade, accolade, accolade. (laughs) (laughs) No, that version was perfect. (laughs) So let's get started just by having you tell us about Palestine Legal. We talk about Palestine Legal all the time on the podcast. We're constantly referencing Palestine Legal's work. But for those who are maybe just tuning in for the first time, tell us about Palestine Legal. What is it? When and why did the organization start? And what kind of work do you do? Thanks so much for the introduction, Lara. So for those of you that aren't familiar with Palestine Legal, we are a nonprofit legal and advocacy organization supporting Palestine activism and bolstering the grassroots movement for Palestinian rights. We defend the civil and constitutional rights of people in the U.S. who speak out for Palestinian freedom. And we do that by advising them on legal questions, advocating on their behalf, and by educating people so that they can be an advocate for themselves. 
We also document and track tactics being used to silence advocates for Palestinian rights, including repressive legislation. To give sort of like broader context, we were founded in 2012. So we actually just celebrated our 10 year anniversary last year. We were founded by our director, Dima Khalidi. We primarily have three offices in Chicago, California, New York, but our team is expanding. So we're now a staff of 11 and we have some folks in Michigan and, and down in Texas. But we can assist advocates anywhere in the country. Yeah, I've gotten in touch with you guys a bunch of times when we yeah. were being yeah <laughs> thanks for your help already <laughs> oh no that's not usually a good thing when people no. are like we've spoken to you no before. you guys are you do a great job and i mean obviously we're clear targets so it makes yeah. sense for us to have had to reach out to you Definitely. We've reached out, notably with respect to the censorship that we faced on social media when trying to advocate for Palestinian liberation. It's been really helpful to just get that immediate feedback about, okay, what can we do, especially in the moment, because the moment is so essential, especially when you're on social media and you're trying to raise awareness about an injustice which is happening right now. So it's it's been very helpful to be able to to liaise with with you guys. The point of censorship is to have a chilling effect on the person posting content. The huge corporation hopes that you will freeze and paralyze in that moment, which a lot of people do. It's an understandable reaction. But having that legal contact, Palestine legal, helps you not feel so alone, not feel like you're tackling this beast by yourself because there's this group of people who are trained to help and uh, get results in this type of situation. So what do you think today is the biggest challenge for those who are advocating for Palestinian liberation in the U.S.? There is a growing Palestine solidarity movement in the U.S. It's student-led, it's diverse, it's dynamic, and it's increasingly filtering up from the grassroots and, and is interconnected with other racial justice struggles. So over the last decade, a dynamic movement in support of Palestinian human rights, particularly active in, in U.S. colleges and campuses and, and universities, has helped raise public awareness regarding Israel government's violations of international law, as well as the role of corporations and, and the U.S. government, of course, in, in facilitating these abuses. So this activism, fueled by Israel's increasingly destructive assaults on Gaza, presents a robust and sustainable challenge to the long-standing orthodoxy in the United States that excuses justifies and otherwise supports discriminatory Israeli government policies. So in response to these calls for freedom, equality, and justice for Palestinians, advocates have been met with efforts to chill and, and censor and punish. There's this huge fear, a shift in domestic public opinion. Israel's fiercest defenders in the U.S., a network of, of advocacy organizations, public relations firms, and think tanks have intensified their efforts to, to stifle criticism of Israeli government policies. So rather than engage such criticism on its merits, these groups leverage significant resources and lobbying power to, to pressure universities, government actors, and other institutions to censor or punish advocacy in support of Palestinian rights. And so these tactics, Palestine Legal tracks these tactics over the years, frequently follow recognizable patterns. Campus advocates, including students and educators, similarly face various methods of intimidation including false accusations of anti-Semitism, of, of support for terrorism, cyberbullying and doxing, free speech violations, surveillance and discrimination or harassment. And so one of the most common tactics that we've documented and you know, really lays the foundation for many other forms of oppression and harassment are false accusations of anti-Semitism. And, and by, by relying on anti-Palestinian, anti-Arab, anti-Muslim tropes, smear campaigns falsely portray activists who support Palestinian freedom as either violent or anti-Semitic. 
So, you know, some groups also accuse like Arab American, Muslim or other Palestinian solidarity activists of supporting or sympathizing with terrorism, which, you know, is a really inflammatory charge often lodged without any evidence. And these conflations are, are problematic for a lot of reasons, but, but most notably because it silences meaningful conversation about Palestinian rights and distracts from genuine forms of hatred and anti-Semitism. We see institutional actors primarily in response to pressure from Israel advocacy groups erect a bureaucratic barrier to thwart efforts to discuss abuses of Palestinian rights and occasionally even cancel events or programs altogether. So we see university officials routinely erecting administrative obstacles or abruptly altering school policies so as to hamper student organizing for Palestinian rights. And measures include often like creating roadblocks to reserving rooms or, or forcing students to obtain advance approval for, for events or, or pay like really heightened burdensome security fees or, or to like attend mandatory meetings with administrators. And there's so many examples of this. We see students for justice in Palestine groups all over the country organizing events, panels, conferences, discuss Palestine, and, and they're consistently met with efforts to silence them. So just to give a few examples, just last May, uh, last year, the SJP student group at John Jay College of Criminal Justice partnered with their student government to host a Palestine Lives conference. And the conference was scheduled for May 14th, just ahead of Nakba Day, you know, a holiday that commemorates the forced expulsion and ethnic cleansing of nearly 800,000 indigenous Palestinians from their land. And after weeks of planning and submitting the necessary paperwork, students were informed just days before the event was scheduled to take place that it had to be indefinitely postponed. Even though the students had followed all the same steps as they regularly do for campus events, the administrators made vague claims that the students didn't follow proper protocols, you know, without ever providing an explanation of the specific protocols that had not been followed. And, you know, really ignoring the significance of the timing of the event, administrators just told students, you know, that they could reschedule the event for a later date after the students complained about the censorship of their event. And then also earlier in the year in April at UIUC, the Diversity, Equity and Inclusion Office issued a statement ahead of a campus talk by uh, Rutgers University professor Nuda Etikat, mischaracterizing the talk, calling it exclusionary and unrepresentative of university values. And, you know, incorrectly denied the fact that the office had actually sponsored the talk. And so a week later, the office issued another statement apologizing for the misleading statement regarding the sponsorship for the talk, but still called the title of the talk Unfinished Business, Zionism as Racism and Racial Discrimination Offensive. And so even though the event went on as scheduled, the title of the event was missing on the, on the list of events. And so sometimes the consequences are a lot more severe than event cancellations or alterations. You know, sometimes universities suspend student groups. They deny tenure to faculty or they fire them outright in response to their criticism of Israel. We see a lot of meritless lawsuits and legal threats, you know, which come from a variety of Israel advocacy groups. And we see a lot of legislation targeting advocacy for Palestinian rights. These bills generally fall into two categories. There are like anti-BDS legislation and then anti-Semitism definition measures. And so these are just some of the biggest challenges that Palestine advocates face. You know, all of these tactics individually and in the aggregate and the First Amendment rights of people who seek to raise awareness about Palestinian human rights abuses, seek to challenge the dominant perspective in this country, which, which discounts as Israel's discriminatory and violent government policies. Isn't it interesting that U.S. colonial society was founded on a boycott and now they're like, we can't boycott anymore. <laughs> At least not this specific human rights violator. The example that you gave, I think, is really key because part of the strategy, I think, 
for trying to suppress speech related to advocating for Palestinian freedom is trying to trap Palestinians or their allies in all sorts of procedure, right? So you can have your event, but we're going to cancel it today, but you can have it later, but we don't know when later is. And, you know, if you can have it under this name or maybe not with this speaker or whatever, right? And it's it's very similar to what's happening on social media when we see the suppression of content related to Palestine, because in the moment, we are trying to draw attention to an essential human rights violation, which is happening. The post or the story will get deleted. We will be trapped in all sorts of procedure, trying to get it back, trying to draw attention to the fact that no, 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 this isn't hate speech. You know, this shouldn't have been deleted for violence or dangerous organizations. We're we're trying to draw attention to the fact that we're the victims here of crimes. This was actually a threat against me uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that I'm posting. Right. So, so, so you do that. You try to you know, draw their attention if you can through the options that exist in the applications, or if you're lucky, you have a direct contact at, you know, Meta or Instagram or whatever, and they may come back and say, oh, we're sorry, that was removed by mistake. And that's what's happened nearly 100% of the time, if not 100% of the time, anytime the Palestine pod or Michael or myself have been censored. We are told, oops, we shouldn't have done that. We've restored your content. Theory. And they said it about a story which gets deleted after 24 hours anyways. 100%. That's and exactly so it's like, oh, that. your content, which is already would have been deleted normally, it's restored. You've right. restored dead content. Like, what are you bringing that shit back to life? You doing alchemy out here, my boy? Like, what are we talking about? And that's exactly what happened to me the last time that I was censored for posting about the pogroms in Ambles and Huara. All of my posts were deleted. All of my stories were deleted for constituting alleged hate speech. I contested every single one of the deletions. Nothing happened when I did it through the app. So I reached out to the contact that I have at Meta and I said, please help. All of this has been removed. Everything that I'm posting is getting deleted the instant it's being posted. He came back to me a few days later, said, your content is all restored when in fact, None of it was restored. None of the stories were back, obviously, for the reason Michael just stated. But even worse, the post which he said was restored wasn't restored. So, but he admitted in that moment, oh, it was a mistake. It should all be back. And now I'm still trying to to to, to go back and forth with him to be like, no, actually, it's not back. Please pay more attention. But since the initial incident took place, the need for me to post those stories, right, was several days ago. By the time this gets resolved, it'll be, you know, maybe weeks from now. And what and that's that's the point right because they know that they can't actually stop the flow of information they just want to interrupt it for a little bit we'll report our content knowing that it doesn't violate any of the community guidelines and upon appeal it'll be restored but, but they don't really care they just want to stop the immediate flow of information it's like a little informational dam so much of fighting for palestinian rights in the u.s is a fight over what palestinians or our allies are allowed to say about our lived experiences are we allowed to name our oppressors are we allowed to crit critique and denounce you know the ideology responsible for our oppression um, so I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit about the status of freedom of speech in the U.S. as it concerns Palestinian rights. Legally, the answer is yes. We all know that we have the First Amendment right to speak out. And government actors and, and, and arms of the government can't restrict our speech just because it's controversial or, or they don't agree with it. But in actuality, what is actually happening, right? 
I just spoke a lot about the strategies and tactics that Zionists often impose on Palestine advocates. And they have their intended effect, you know, which is to intimidate and, and to deter Palestinian solidarity activists from speaking out. These tactics and, and patterns demonstrate the real threat to our freedom of speech in the U.S. as it concerns Palestinian rights. This course on Palestine on college campuses and elsewhere is being increasingly censored in a way that harkens back to McCarthyism in the 1950s. The Palestine exception to free speech is a sign of the broader erosion of free speech and other constitutional rights. It's really clear that there's a widespread right-wing assault on not just our academic freedom, but on our First Amendment rights, our constitutional rights, our voting rights, our abortion rights, you name it. And, and it's really up to us to defend them and, and to push them back. I would um, just interject to say that both wings are assaulting right? Mm. Like one wing just sort of like wears kentic cloth and kneels while assaulting. Yeah, good point. Honestly, it's unfortunately the truth. I think like one of the most concerning tactics, like for me, are, is the, the efforts to like codify these restrictions on free speech, especially around boycotts. And politicians are continuing to push anti-Palestinian measures via legislation targeting advocacy of Palestinian rights. Just last year, there were 11 bills introduced on this, at the state level to create new anti-BDS laws or, or to expand the scope of, of existing anti-BDS laws. You know, obviously like these bills, if enacted, like really chill free speech rights. And if it's not because of the like misunderstanding over the scope of the bills, it's just like the, the chilling effect that they have. Although these bills typically only apply to like public contracts, they, they chill other expressive activity. Like similar bills have been invoked to chill student and community activism and support Palestinian human rights or, or to pre prevent public talks happening at universities or to censor school teachers and, and cancel cultural events. As well as like environmental activists, right? We just exactly. saw in like Atlanta with the whole cop city situation, exactly. they murdered Tortuguita. And, you know, that's just like a continuation of the escalation of police policy, which is colonial violence. You just released your annual report. So for those that don't know, every year Palestine Legal publishes an annual report summarizing some of its findings and the efforts that have been taken to stifle Palestinian activism, as well as the work that it has done to combat that. Can you give us a sense of some of the findings of this year's report? Yeah, absolutely. So like you mentioned, every year we publish our year in review, documenting trends and backlash facing the movement Palestinian rights in the U.S. and the movement's resilience against them. So in 2022, Palestine Legal received direct reports of 214 incidents of suppression. And we also responded to 48 legal questions from activists who were concerned that their rights were being threatened. 70% of the incidents we responded to last year targeted students and scholars at 80 different campuses across the country. There were at least 24 legislative measures introduced last year aimed at condemning, silencing, or punishing advocacy for Palestinian rights. You know, these bills, like I mentioned, include anti-BDS bills and also, you know, bills adopting a distorted definition of anti-Semitism. The trends that we witnessed last year include, you know, Palestine activists continuing to make strides on campus across the country. Students and faculty are, are, are engaging in a new generation of campus boycotts. We see student journalists speaking out and more and more faculty standing in solidarity with Palestine. We see universities in Israel advocacy groups continuing to seek to silence activists. They push for universities to chill activism through investigations, bureaucratic barriers and hurdles and falsely equating Palestine activism with anti-Semitism. It's not the good type of chill. <laughs> 
It absolutely is not. We found that faculty members are still under attack. So groups on and off campus are continuing to pressure academics over their support for Palestinians. We even see K through 12 students, educators and board members facing smear campaigns, censorship and lawsuits. K through 12, that's... I heard they went after a kindergartner. How many like kindergartners are they going after? You got to imagine. <laughs> exactly. It's got to be... Exactly. Like it can't exactly. be too many, like, but at the same point, like it's probably too many, right? Because if it's yeah. any, it's too many. They're like, we have to go after this kid because we saw a crayon drawing of Palestine. I mean, yeah. that's literally what they did at that hospital in the UK when they oh, advocated. Right. They I wasn't even thinking that. about that. I was like, let me say the most absurd thing possible, but, but it's already happened. Hey, it's pretty crazy. If y'all don't know, you're about to find out. Guys, satire doesn't work anymore because of the occupation, actually. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm about to, let me just read that real quick. A London hospital was forced to take down artwork created by Palestinian schoolchildren in Gaza after complaints by a British pro-Israel charity. According to a statement by UK Lawyers for Israel, the hospital was compelled to remove the artwork because a number of Jewish patients said that they felt, quote unquote, vulnerable and victimized by the display. The artwork was what? designed... Yeah. By... <laughs> How do you feel vulnerable and victimized by art, dog? That's art. Art? The art was designed by children at two schools run by UNRWA and Gaza and transferred onto plates by children at the Chelsea Community Hospital School. The caption for one of the display plates was, The olive branch is the symbol of peace and is used to express the wish for an independent Palestinian state. The group said that the drawings from Gaza appear to be professional artwork in the same style and carried out by the same person. So now they're like challenging who made the art. What's really weird is that in response to the removal of this artwork from the Westminster Hospital, the pro-Israel group released a statement saying that they were, quote, delighted to announce that the artwork had been removed. Hey, dog, you ever celebrate getting a kid's painting removed from a hospital? When they were called out by the very creepy way in which they announced their delight to report that Chelsea and Westminster Hospital removed the display of artwork designed by children from Gaza, they reworded the statement to remove the reference to their delight. Instead, the, sta the updated statement read, Chelsea and Westminster Hospital has removed a display of artwork incorporating Palestinian political propaganda. So they had to couch it, right? Because their initial glee, you know, when they announced that, oh, the, the children, the Palestinian children's art is gone. It was really creepy for everyone who saw that. And they were like, oops, we can't actually show our true nature. So then they went back and they were like, oh, it was Palestinian political propaganda. So we had it removed. And, and that's what's happened. Right. But the first statement, which is the one that tells you how they really feel. Let's not forget. They said, we are delighted to report that the hospital has removed a display of artwork designed by children from Gaza. They were delighted that the children's art was removed. They tried to unsend a text in real life. You know what I mean? It's like, we already yeah. saw it. We all saw what you said, <laughs> you weirdos. Message read. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, what are you doing, bro? Like, that's not how shit works. We're not just seeing discriminatory treatment on campuses, but we're also seeing it, you know, off campus. So we've seen a lot of discrimination happening in people's workplaces. So a lot of like employees coming to us being like, I spoke about Palestine on like my social media platform or I'm trying to bring support for Palestine in my, my workspaces and I'm, I'm being targeted for it or like I'm being discriminated against because of it. 
And, and you raised this earlier, but also like censorship on social media. It's so real. Social media companies are repeatedly censoring Palestine solidarity organizers. And we're seeing a lot of that happen, notably last, last year in 2022. One of the very famous cases of Palestinians who were retaliated against was the case of Steve Salida, Professor Steve Salida, mm -hmm. who lost his tenured professor position at U of I and eventually settled with U of I. When you see these cases of retaliation and and attempts to punish Palestinians for, for speaking out, whether it be on campus, whether they be professors. It was Dr. Cornell West who lost tenorship at Harvard. Yeah. So, so when you see that kind of thing happening, whether it be on campus or off campus, like in, in the workplace, what are the results? Like, I mean, are people getting their jobs back when they get fired? Are they, are they, are they settling out of court? Are they getting absolutely no justice because the reality is the work is risky right the work is very risky if you want yeah to what are the vibes what are the <laughs> vibes like if you're taking on like the most powerful intelligence apartheid apparatus to ever exist like what are the vibes <laughs> my experience uh, with with being at polygal for, for almost two years now i get this question a lot like my friends and family are always kind of asking me like well so what happens like these do these people get remedy like do they do they sort of like are they restored in the end i like to think that like most of the times there there are successes in stories and where there are especially students where there's like discrimination or 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 free speech violations happening on campus for students that go to like public universities that's where it's really like you messed up private universities i think it's a little bit more difficult and i think in the cases where there's like professors that are at risk of like losing their jobs we i haven't seen that that many stories personally i think like in the one or two cases that that i that i've seen or witnessed firsthand like we we've been able to get involved and like really support these people through these processes and like attend meetings with them and like really speak about why their social media presence or or speech on social media really has nothing to do with the fact that they're a teacher at this school not being like too optimistic but also not trying to be pessimistic like i really think like i like to think that most of the times like these people are able you know are restored in the end but Hey, we we love a positive answer. We weren't hoping you were like, it's soul crushing. Nobody comes out alive. Like it's a gauntlet nobody wants. Like that's not what we were hoping for. It's nice. It's nice to hear some good news, right? It's nice to hear that most people come out whole. They, you know, aren't terribly like scarred forever. It's mostly okay, right? Like that's nice. Yeah, and maybe in fact we we don't hear about those cases as often because they have happy endings, right? The ones that we're right. familiar with are the ones where the retaliation stuck, and then you know it, there was no remedy, and those are the ones that that become you know infamous. Keeping on the thread of good news, can you share with us what some of the biggest wins have been for the Palestinian liberation movement in the U.S. this last year? I've been speaking a lot about all the different strategies and tactics of repression, but there is certainly a strength through unity and resistance. We really see the tide turning. We see an increased awareness of an opposition to Israel's treatment of Palestinians. And even in the face of these repressive measures, we see SJP chapters growing, BDS wins accumulating, and they're filtering up from the grassroots to decision makers. We know that Israel and its allies are desperate to suppress advocacy for Palestinian freedom because they can't win on the moral argument. Israel's repressive measures will fail because the movement can't be bullied into silence. And so more and more people of conscience are understanding that our fundamental rights are at stake. And if we don't resist attacks on our movements, they it'll that will always be the status quo. And so just to share some wins, the DC Superior Court ended a nine-year harassment campaign 
against the American Studies Association and several of its members over its, its historic 2013 academic boycott resolution. And so this victory comes as Israel is intensifying its attacks on Palestinian civilians and underscores the importance of boycotts and, and other campaigns for Palestinian rights. How legals filed an amicus brief urging the DC Court of Appeals at an earlier stage of the case to dismiss the lawsuit. Because it was filed to scare professors from, from supporting uh, the academic boycott of Israel. Last year, students at Arizona State University successfully hosted a talk by a popular Palestinian student and journalist, Mohammed Al-Kurd, after a month of delays and a push by fellow students to invoke a distorted definition of anti-Semitism to block their event. The student organizers from the Palestine Cultural Club and from SJP invited Okurd to speak about Rifka, his, his poetry book. And when a student government committee attempted to condition the approval of the event on Okurd from criticizing Israel, re re refraining from criticizing Israel, Palestine Legal warned ASU that doing so was a violation of the First Amendment. And student government approved the event the very same day. Yeah, um, that'd, be, that'd be a tough sell, huh? <laughs> Two, two other wins, if, if, if there's if there's time to keep sharing. There's time for all the wins. Give us all the wins. <laughs> okay, cool. In May of last year, the City University of New York Law School, CUNY School of Law, is which is where I attended law school, the faculty voted to endorse a student government resolution in support of Palestinian liberation, joining hundreds of academic departments, programs, and unions worldwide standing for Palestinian rights. CUNY um, School of Law is like a little legal Janine. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> you got a bunch of hitters coming out of there. Like, we know Nerdine Kiswani, right? No they way. accused her. Of course, we've had her on the pod. She's a friend of the pod. And they, the, you know, local Zionist groups tried to smear her as being anti-Semitic. And then CUNY School of Law actually did, like, a public record where they disavowed her of any of those accusations and so that's like one of the first instances of a law school taking a stance mm -hmm. like that so what's up with cuny you know what i mean what's going on there you guys got something good going on yeah right? i <laughs> i hope so <laughs> cuny is often a target for sure i think like it's a it's a hub and a hotspot for sure and there are a lot of palestine advocates and activists there but i also think that makes a, re a really clear target for zionists and that's why cuny is always like in the news one last success to share last april the Harvard Crimson a student newspaper published an editorial titled In Support of BDS and a Free Palestine. That was huge. And, and, and the, the editorial board expressed its support for Palestinian dignity and freedom, reversed its previous position against BDS. Yeah, because Harvard's very Zionist. I mean, Harvard is no CUNY. So um, it's that is a big move because they're starting from a very different position. Well, that's, I mean, where Dr. Cornell West was working and he was supposed to get tenureship. He already had it at one point and then he left and came back and they just wouldn't give it to him again. Let's turn to the question of U.S. policy. So we are regularly in critique of U.S. policy on the Palestine pod. Um, I think the state of U.S. policy today is abysmal. And in my view, it's actually probably the worst it's ever been towards Palestinian rights. And I think this is especially the case when you contrast the policy which essentially is unchanged with the permanency and, and the daily exacerbation of the settler colonial project. Every day, it's getting worse and worse on the ground. Every day, Israel is further entrenching and expanding its apartheid project. And, you know, the recent election of the most fascist Israeli government in existence that has, you know, openly advocated for, for the killing of Palestinians and continued land theft, as well as the general consensus of human rights organizations that this is 
in fact, apartheid. We also have the removal of Ilhan Omar from the Foreign Affairs Committee and the U.S. continuation of funding for Israel. It seems like the U.S. is signaling its intent to remain on the wrong side of history until the very end. It's literally saying to everyone, we're going to go down with Israel. Do you agree with this analysis? Why or why not? Do you think there's any hope for U.S. policy to, to change? Or is it indicating it's going to go down with the apartheid state? I think U.S. policy is a game of peekaboo, where you just put your hand over your eyes and you're like, didn't see what happened, you know? Uh, because Smotrich, the guy whose name is literally a town in Ukraine, just declared that po the pogrom in Huara was not enough. He wants the actual military and government facilities dedicated to wiping a town off the map, which is insane, right? Because they have for years said that from the river to the sea was a call for genocide to wipe off the map. And now here you have a government official actually saying those words i literally just typed in wipe off the map israel you know what comes up the fucking misquote from ahmadinejad in iran like 2004 they're still trying to say that he said something he didn't say when they are in fact saying the quiet part out loud and then this motherfucker is about to come to the united states and be received as like a government official. Some Jewish groups, to their credit, are calling for a boycott. Not enough. And it's like, how is, I, honestly, I'm just confused how somebody who literally called for genocide can get like clearance to enter the United States. I have a friend who has a felony who can't enter Canada. Like, what's up? Do I have any hope in the US government or US policy shifting to support or free Palestine? Absolutely not. I don't think the US or any other state or government is going to free Palestine. It's the grassroots organ organizers, the activists, and armed resistance on the ground that's going to free Palestine. There is no possible justification for a system built around the institutionalized and prolonged racist oppression of millions of people. Apartheid has no place in our world, and states that choose to make allowances for Israel will find themselves on the wrong side of history. Governments who continue to supply Israel with arms and, and shield it from accountability are supporting a system of apartheid, undermining the international legal order and exasperating the suffering of Palestinian freedom. Being on the wrong side of history is never a comfortable position, but that's exactly where the US, Israel and its closest friends are. For years, we all know there's been a strong and historic tie relationship between Israel and the US and it's fortified by deep security cooperation and nearly $4 billion in U.S. military aid each year. An unbreakable bond, they say. Mm-hmm. All these years, America has been telling the world that it's committed to a, a two-state resolution and a viable Palestinian state side by side with a secure Israel. The very idea of a two-state solution is, a, is an American construct. And so I really I really don't have any hope that, you know, the, the policy or, or the sort of stance on Palestine and Palestinian freedom will change from, from the U.S. What I do think is that this relationship isn't immune to eternal pressure. In recent years, we're seeing more voices, even within the Democratic Party, you know, uh, that are, they're more willing to call out human rights abuses. They're slowly being joined by more and more moderate Democrats, some of 
Umar were considered to be like strongest, uh, Israel's strongest advocates on the Hill. And so I think this tonal shift, you know, is happening and it's not limited to Washington. You know, American, ordinary Americans are, are also like shifting and there's a notable shift in public opinion. But again, I don't think that's going to come from U.S. policy or, or the U.S. government. I think that's happening. It's all being, you know, um, caused by activists and advocates and organizers on the ground. So you think my friend in Canada is going to be able to get in or what? <laughs> I don't know about your friend. <laughs> Can I ask a quick follow-up question? How much sure. of Palestine Legal's work then is focused on things like lobbying? Do you dedicate any time to this or not at all? We don't dedicate much time to lobbying. Capacity constraints don't allow us to engage in lobbying that much, but we try our, our best really to support those that are doing the work. So we're really connected with organizations and people that are doing that work and try our best to support them in however ways that we can, whether it's like providing resources, like amplifying their calls or direct actions. So, but unfortunately we're not doing that direct work. How can our listeners best support the work of Palestine Legal? There are a lot of different ways to get involved depending on your capacity. So first and foremost, our work is in service of the movement. So people speaking out about Palestine and educating and organizing others is the best long-term support. For people helping sustain Palestine Legal in particular and expand our ability to provide free legal support to activists, they can donate. Our, our work is funded mainly by donations from people across the country. For people who want to contribute their time and attention, they can follow us on social media and subscribe to our email list and amplify activist stories and pick up the phone or write an email in support of activists when we ask folks to do that. And lastly, for lawyers in particular, we are always looking to connect with people who are interested in contributing their time, supporting the movement via their particular area of expertise. We currently have a robust attorney network in which we've successfully built uh, relationships with attorneys in different fields across the country, but we're always looking to build more connections and relationships. We have a lot of aspiring lawyers, law students, people listening. They might be interested to hear about the Palestine Legal Internship Program. Can you tell us a little bit about that? We have an internship program for law students that is full-time in the summer and part-time in the spring and fall semesters. Right now in March, we're not currently accepting applications, but people can check our website, join our email list, or follow us on social media for updates on when we'll be recruiting new interns. Beyond our internship program, people can also connect with this type of work through their National Lawyers Guild chapter, or by joining or establishing a Law Students for Justice in Palestine chapter on their campus. Which I think is un... How do I say this? An, an, underrepresented. An, un, yes, an under... Thank you, Michael, for the words that I don't have. I think that's an underrepresented area. Uh, we often hear about SJP, and SJP is a force to be reckoned with on campuses. But when I was in law school, there was no group for supporting Palestine in the law school, even though the undergrad of the same school had a very active SGP. So if anyone is in law school and a, and a group like that doesn't currently exist, it's definitely something to consider starting. Because Yeah, and it's never been easier to do it because you could build an apartheid wall with the human rights reports that have been published. Exactly. Thank you very much. Do you have any last words, Ahmed? No, just thank you both so much for having me. Thank, yeah, you. thank you so much for your time. We so appreciate your efforts and sharing everything with us today. Laura, you want to get anything out? No, that, that's it for me too. Thanks okay. again. Uh, Emma Tabata. Oh my God, I forgot. Wow. 
I know. It's, it's so we were, we were crushing we're, it until just then. Uh, let me do it again. Let me do it again. No, it already happened. The text was already sent, okay? You can't <laughs> no, rephrase already it. Already read. Already yeah, read. Yeah. Oh, uh, all right. <laughs> Sorry. I just got tongue-tied because it was, it's like 11. Yeah, we Paris get it. Guys, okay. that's been another episode hey, of the Palestine. Not... <laughs> Thank Folks. you. I get F. Can I go? It's cool that none of us can like complete a sentence today. It's good that we all got together for a podcast. <laughs> yeah, <right? laughs> Friday night, baby. Thank you again. I'm El Thabet at Palestine Legal. Thank you for being with us today. Michael, outro. Folks, that's been another episode of the Palestine Pod. Thank you all so much for listening. Find our full episodes and sources at www.palestinepod.com. Send us an email at palestinepod at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram at the Palestine Pod and look for us on Patreon, www.patreon.com slash Palestine Pod. That's been another episode of the pod. Thank you all for listening. Have a great day. Can I just ask you how you would like me to pronounce your last name? Probably correctly. Um. <laughs>